And good morning once again. Well, if you're new with us, uh, you've wandered in from somewhere and wonder what we're all about. Um, I'm not sure I've figured that out yet, but uh, we spent a good amount of time studying First and Second Samuel, uh, looking at the life of three of uh, Israel's uh, best-known leaders, Samuel, Saul, and David. And uh, after we finished that a few weeks ago, we took a little uh, kind of a break to do a three-part series on how could we know the will of God. So many of you have been asking me, well, what are we starting now? What are we starting new at Calvary on Sunday mornings? And uh, God has led me to uh, take the church into the Gospel of John. Now, let me just say this. This morning, we won't actually start John's Gospel. <laughs> but rather, I'd like to do an introductory message, which I've entitled... The Apostle John, A Life Transformed. And it really is built around 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, if you turn there. The Apostle John, A Life Transformed. Of course, I'm sure you're, most of you are familiar with this verse in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where Paul said, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, guys, this is a very important verse because it tells us that if we will stay in close fellowship with Jesus, looking, you know, as it were, the face, looking at the face of Jesus, well, if we will do that faithfully, a wonderful transformation will begin to take place. The Spirit of God living within us will begin to transform us, as Paul said, from glory to glory. Or in other words, we will become more and more like Jesus the more time we spend with him. And this is why the Gospels are so important. They, they let us see Jesus. They let us see Jesus. And as we look upon him, well, the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like him. And that's why God really gave us four Gospels. And we'll see this uh, when we actually get into John's Gospel. Uh, each looks at... Jesus from a slightly different perspective, uh, kind of like Jesus in quadraphonic, if you're an old, you know, audio file, okay? Um, but together, they reveal to us the manifold loveliness of our Lord for us to gaze upon. Now, when we talk about somebody who underwent a radical transformation, the more time he spent with Jesus, I think that John the Apostle would definitely fit into that category. Um, for his was, listen, an incredible transformation. John came to be known as the Apostle of Love, who, more than anyone else in the New Testament except for Jesus himself, talked about love, exemplified love, and so on. In fact, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus calling John, among others, to come follow him. Why don't you turn to Matthew 4? And we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Which says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Now, we know that Peter and Andrew, his brother, went on to be dynamic evangelists, okay? It was Peter, by the way, as you remember, 
miracle on the day of Pentecost. This was Acts chapter 2. When the Spirit of God fell and the church was born, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, preached a dynamic sermon, the first Spirit-filled sermon of the church age, to a large crowd of Jewish pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem for this one of the three main feasts of Israel. This was Pentecost in the late spring or very early summer. And, uh, of course, these three major feasts, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and then um, Tabernacles, uh, were pilgrims from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem. So it was packed with these travelers. And Peter stood up and preached this first spirit-filled message of the church era, and it says that uh, 3,000 men were saved plus women and children. So maybe 20,000 people got saved one message. Now, that's what I call spirit-filled preaching, all right? The church hits the ground running. Uh, the nursery workers were overtaxed. Uh, you know, it wasn't gradually, let's get into this thing. You got, you know, 20,000 people descending on church. I don't know. It was a... But anyways, we look back in Matthew 4, verse 21, after he calls Peter and Andrew, then going on from there. He saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We know from another gospel that Zebedee was a very successful businessman, a wealthy man. How do we know that? Because he had servants, which means that James and John came from wealth. They had money. Their mother was Salome. She was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So that means that Jesus, James, and John were first cousins. And no doubt they grew up uh, together playing around, uh, you know, uh, in the same area together and uh, having a good time. And I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the line as they were growing up, James and John realized Jesus was special. So much so that when Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah, and called James and John, his cousins, to follow him, they immediately left the family business. It says they left their father, implying that they left, again, the family business, uh, the family wealth, to follow Jesus. They became two of his disciples. I want you to notice, though, what these four men were doing at the moment Jesus called them. All right, Read your Bibles like a detective. Notice little things, phrases, words that the Spirit of God puts there that might give you some insights into some things, okay? I love to do that, all right? What were these four men doing at the exact moment Jesus called them? Well, we read that Peter and Andrew were what? Casting their nets, right? Which is significant because their main ministry would go on to be evangelism. They would be fishers of men. But John and James, we are told, were mending their nets, mending their broken nets is the idea. And I think this is also significant, especially with regard to John, because more than John would be an evangelist, his main ministry would be to mend broken relationships and knit people, God's people, back together. In fact, at the time John wrote his first epistle, the body of Christ was fractured and fragmented. There was a lot of division in the church, some of it due to false doctrine that had crept into the church, that's true, but um, much of it was due to pride, selfishness, and carnality on the part of God's people. Of course, that never happens anymore, but back then it was a problem, okay? 
And because of it, John saw his ministry. No doubt the Holy Spirit led him into this, but John saw his ministry as one of bringing people together, working to restore broken relationships. And you ask, well, just how did he do that? Well, he did it by constantly telling people they needed to love one another. We see, or we kind of get a feel for John's heart in 1 John, uh, and I'll have you turn to 1 John 2, because um, I, want, I want you to kind of get a feel for John's heart. And it really comes through in his epistles, okay? Especially the first one. We read in 1 John 2, starting with verse 8, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Let me paraphrase what John is saying to the churches back then. If you say you're in the light, you're a true Christian, but you have hatred in your heart for another Christian, well, you're deceiving yourself and you're still in darkness. You're still lost. If you are truly saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you can't hate the family of God. You just can't. This then becomes, guys, the litmus test that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, holds up as the, as the determining factor as to whether or not a person is really a Christian. He emphasized this or stressed this even more in, in chapter 3, verse 14. He said, we know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we are Christians because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now look, let me just say this. John is not saying that a true Christian will never have conflict with another Christian. We're family, right? Some of us families fight. We're not talking about that. I grew up with three brothers and a sister. We fought, okay? But it was over with, okay? We'd fight and make up and it was over. I mean, families will sometimes get into conflict or disagreements or even fights. Um, but that's not hatred. If you have hatred in your heart for somebody in your family, that's a real problem. You better get that over to God. You better give it to God. He does not want that poison in your heart, all right, for anyone. We're talking, though, and what John is talking about is not normal conflicts that arise, hard feelings, they hurt me, I'm kind of feeling upset about it kind of a thing. That happens in the body of Christ. Get it right. I'm not saying we should overlook it. Get it right. But what John is talking about is hatred. For from one person toward another, one group toward another, you have to understand something. The early church was made up of Jew and Gentile, right? Both had gotten saved through Christ, obviously. But for all the years before they got saved, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. The Jews thought the Gentiles were defiled. The Gentiles picked up on that and said, the Jews are crazy, we hate them. So these two groups hated one another. So much so that a Jew would not even go north if he wanted to go to Galilee from Jerusalem. He'd have to go uh, pass through uh, Samaria. He they would bypass, go uh, over across the Jordan uh, to the east, cross over uh, in the area of Perea, and then when they were adjacent to the Galilee, cross back over, bypassing Gentile territory altogether. That's how much these two groups hated each other. And John is saying, look, you got to knock it off now. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, the old life is over with. And by the way, if some of you are unwilling to let go of the hatred, you know what? I don't even think you're saved, is the idea. 
It kind of reminds me of how it was in the, in the Deep South 50, 60 years ago when you had the white churches and the black churches, right? And, and, and I'm not saying they were all saved in either church, but you had a lot of white professing Christians who hated blacks and black professing Christians and vice versa. This is the thing we're talking about. How could you call yourself a Christian when you hate the brethren? John is saying, can't happen. Now, in 1 John 3, if you turn there, let's look at verse 23. John says, and this is his commandment, Jesus' commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, or God's commandment, I should say, uh, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John 4, starting with verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Guys, very simple. John is saying the way our love for God is manifested is how in how we love each other. Anyone who says they love God and yet hates other Christians, regardless of what church or denomination they belong to, John says they're a liar, they're deceiving themselves. They're a liar and they're deceiving themselves. This is strong language coming from the apostle of love. But listen to me, sometimes professing Christians need a kick in the pants instead of constant pats on the back. We are living in a time where pastors don't want to offend because they don't want people leaving their churches. It's all about numbers. And because of it, they tend to water things down. They don't hit these tough topics head on. They don't say it like it is. They tiptoe around the tough issues and give people in the church the constant feel like, you know, as Paul said, if I seek to please men, I'm no longer a servant of Christ, but a lot of pastors are doing that. Constantly patting people on the back. Look, I love to encourage if encouragement is warranted. If a reproof is warranted or a rebuke even because of sinful behavior or whatever, then I need to do that too. You know, and this is the idea. And, you know, John was of the mindset, look, I'm not going to go around telling you guys you're wonderful, you're perfect, everything is great, when it's not. Wish we had more preachers like John today. But John's message, although hard for many to hear, it's not easy to hear you're not right with God and you need to change. It's not easy to hear. But although it was hard for many to hear, John's message became the strong medicine needed to heal the division in the early church. It was a simple message, as we said, for, people, for the people of God to love one another. Now listen, John in saying this was no ivory tower theologian. There are some guys who never are really in the, the trenches. Professors and others who are up in these ivory towers of academia, they throw these little pious platitudes down to the rest of us in the trenches, okay? They know nothing about the trenches, most of these guys, all right? John was not like that. John was in the trenches. John was one of the guys on the field, you know? He was, he was leading the march. He was fighting the battles. He was not detached. He was right there in the front lines of ministry. And listen, he was speaking from experience when he said these things. John was the last apostle to die. He, was, he died at the end of the first century. John saw the persecution under Nero. John saw all the other apostles, many of disciples, people he knew and loved, 
who were killed by the Romans, and some of them by the Jews who hated the church. I mean, Peter was crucified upside down. James, not John's brother, but the half-brother of Jesus, who went on to pastor the church in Jerusalem, was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple by some angry Pharisees who hated him, always talking about Jesus, and they didn't believe Jesus was Messiah. They dragged him up to the pinnacle of the temple, threw him off. When he hit the ground, he didn't really die. They ran down there, discovered he wasn't dead, circled him, and beat him to death with clubs. Some disciples were dragged behind horses up and down the Colosseum steps until their brains were dashed out. Some were skinned alive. Some were impaled by, on poles, covered with tar, lit on fire to light Nero's garden at night. Tradition says that it was Emperor Domitian who sentenced John himself to be boiled in oil for proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord. But you see, God wasn't done with John. So they threw him in a pot of boiling oil and nothing happened to him. Which says to me, you're indestructible until God's done with you. I don't test that theory. <laughs> don't do something foolish because he might be done with you. And then you're out of here. I would play it safe. So, you know, couldn't kill him by throwing him in oil. So Domitian then ordered John to be sent to the Isle of Patmos which is really nothing more than the rock that jets up from the Aegean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And actually, in John's day, it was a penal colony where Romans would send prisoners to basically die. God-forsaken place. But while John was on Patmos, alone, forsaken, and isolated, it was there that Jesus visited John and gave him the greatest revelation in the Bible, the one we would later call the Book of Revelation. Look, let me just stop and say this. Sometimes when we're feeling alone, forsaken, and isolated, we're prone to think that God has abandoned us. We're prone to think that he's through with us. And this is how our life is going to end. This is where the story ends. Alone, forsaken, broken, empty, whatever it might be. I'm wondering if John felt that way when he was on the Isle of Patmos before the Lord appeared to him. You know, it's been my experience, every time we think, and I'm not saying you're, if you're living in sin or something, that's a little different story, but every time we think that, you know, maybe we've blown it in some way, though, uh, or something else, we find ourselves kind of forsaken, uh, broken in some way, maybe people have turned against us, uh, or maybe like Peter, we denied the Lord in some way, we didn't really want to, but we were weak and we did it. Oftentimes we think this is the end. Uh, I've blown it. Uh, never. This, this is God's forsaken me now. But you know what? Often I find that it's at those moments where we are broken, where we humble ourselves, we we seek God in a way that we don't typically seek Him when things are going well. You know, your failures don't hurt the kingdom of God. Um, they're not pleasant, but they don't hurt God's kingdom is going to go forward. And our failures don't hurt the kingdom of God, and listen to me, they won't even hurt our future ministries for the Lord unless we give up, walk away. When Peter denied the Lord three times, remember before the cross, the, that, you know, the night before the cross, it says he went away and wept bitterly. For three days while Jesus was in the grave, Peter was isolated. 
he felt forsaken. He felt like he had let the Lord down. How could God ever use me ever again? This is it for me. I'm done. Yet the gospels say the first person that Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead was Peter and restored him. See, Peter was Peter's greatest days of ministry we have future. But you see, he had a little pride issue. And we can't serve, there, if you have pride, there's no power. God won't bless pride. And so you remember, Jesus said today, before the night is out, all my disciples will forsake me. And Peter says, well, these guys will forsake you, but never. I would never forsake you, Lord. And God had, Jesus had to let Peter fall hard to break him. Because only when we're broken can God empower us to do the work he wants us to do. Peter didn't realize that. He thought he had failed and that was it. It was over. And Jesus said, no, Peter, I did some surgery. I, I, I allowed you to fall hard. I had to break you of your pride and self-reliance. Now draw close to me. Your greatest days of ministry are yet future. Trust me. I see this, guys, for many of us, maybe all of us. Again, sometimes we're feeling alone, forsaken, isolated. We're prone to think that's it. God's abandoned us. I'm done. But as God wasn't done with John, often he's not done with us. In fact, listen to me. God allowed John to be in isolation for the purpose of revelation. And that could be exactly what God has in mind for you this morning. You come here this morning and you find yourself maybe in a similar place like John. Um, you're just broken about some things, maybe some failures that you can't seem to get right. Maybe it's drugs of some kind, alcohol, pornography, something else, and you're just, you just can't seem to get a handle on it, and it seems now like you've just said, Lord, I've failed you so many times. I feel like I'm done. I don't feel your presence anymore. I think you've abandoned me. That's not true. That is not true. I believe in that state the Lord Jesus wants to show himself to you in a way you never thought possible. Listen, to bring revival to your heart and revelation to your life, to lift you to a whole new level of usefulness, because before God lifts us to a new level, he first works on breaking us. That pain is not pleasant, but it's always a prelude to something greater that we can do for God. Look, let me just say this. Sometimes when things are going well, we tend to cruise in our Christianity, right? Oh, if I have time for my devotions, fine in the morning. If not, I'll do them when I get home from work, although we never usually do. But listen, when we're feeling alone and isolated, we become desperate. We become desperate. We seek God in a way we don't typically seek Him when we're not in a very desperate situation. There's something about a heart of desperation that cries out to God that God says, I will never turn my ear away from the broken, the contrite, the desperate. The effective, fervent prayers of the righteous accomplish great things. That fervency is oftentimes connected to desperation. You're desperate about your marriage. It's ready to end. You're desperate about a wayward child. You don't know what to do. You're desperate about your financial situation or a health issue. Desperation drives us to our knees and causes us to pour our hearts out to God in a way we don't do it when the sun is shining and things are going great. 
And it's out of those times of desperation and isolation that we seek the Lord with that kind of intensity that Jesus will come and meet with us in a fresh and powerful new way. You say, how? I don't know. That's up to him. It's not always a dramatic thing either. I remember a story about a godly cobbler back in the old days. A very godly man, and one night he had a dream that the Lord had spoken to him that the next day the Lord Jesus was going to come and visit him at his shop. Well, he gets up early. He's excited. The dream was so real. He just really believed the Lord spoke to him. He rushes out to the forest, grabs a bunch of uh, boughs, of, uh, you know, of evergreen boughs, comes back and decorates his shop. And he's waiting all morning for the Lord to come. And the only one who walks in is a, a very old man who asked if he could come in to get warm because it was so cold outside. And the cobbler invited him in. And as he was sitting there getting warm, he noticed that the man's shoes were worn through the bottom. And so the cobbler goes over to the shelf, pulls a new pair of shoes off, and gives it to the man and made sure that he was wearing them as he left the shop. Then after lunch, a woman he saw out in the street dragging a load of firewood, uh, very heavy and all, and, and she looked exhausted, so he had her come in, and he gave her something to eat before he sent her on the, her way. And then right about the time he was going to close up shop for the day, he, saw a little, uh, he heard a little boy crying outside the door of his shop. He went outside and began to talk to this young boy, and the boy said he was lost. He didn't remember where he lived. He knew the address, but not how to get there. And so the cobbler took him by the hand and brought him home. And then he came back to his shop, heartbroken. And he prayed, Lord, why didn't you visit me today? You said you were going to come. I did. I came three times. I was the man who had worn out shoes. I was the, the woman who needed a rest. I was the little boy who was lost. You know, we, we want Jesus to materialize, like, fiery image of him, like, or, or write something across the sky. We don't see Jesus often in the normal, simple events of life. Look, take heart this morning. If you're on your own personal Isle of Patmos, take hope. Jesus will reveal himself to you in a way that you didn't expect or maybe even thought was possible. Well, after Domitian died in AD 96, John was allowed to return to Ephesus where he lived out the remainder of his life in ministry and uh, was eventually buried there. But while he was there in semi-retirement, God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had John, again, God wasn't through with John. That's why he couldn't be boiled to death. God wasn't through with them. And so while John was in semi-retirement there in Ephesus, the Spirit of God had John pen the Gospel of John, his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. By this time, of course, John was quite elderly, around 100, okay? And he had seen much during the course of his life, much heartache. He had been through a lot of heartache. For many men, they would have retired completely and said, I'm done, I've done my time. I want to rest now. But see, John still thought of himself as a mender of relationships, a binder up of broken hearts, a healer of division among the people of God. And he had a message he wanted to bring to the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And so, as an old man, they would bring John into the churches, and uh, sometimes he was so weak that they had to 
help him up to the platform so he could preach. Um, sometimes he was so weak, they, he just sat in a chair, and a couple of young guys grabbed the whole chair and brought him up to the front and uh, set him on the platform. Asuvius, the uh, historian, tells us that when John came into the church, everyone broke out in applause. And they could hear all over the room, there's the Apostle John, the last living eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as they brought John up to the front of the church, silence fell over the room. Everyone wanted to hear what this great man of God had to say to them. And John's message was always the same. They'd bring him up there, sit him down. All right, John, we're ready. What do you have to tell us? My little children love one another. And he'd walk off, or they'd carry him off. <laughs> it was always the same. Every church he went, you know, and everyone's, oh, I can't wait to hear what he has to tell us. Little children love one another. And he was gone. In fact, one time an elder of one of these churches said to John, he said, John, why don't you, I mean, why is it that that's all you ever tell us? Why don't you tell us something heavy or profound? Vesuvius tells us that John looked at him and said, This is the sole command of Christ, to love one another. He who loves has need of nothing else. See, John was convinced that the key to walking with God was all wrapped up in the concept of loving people. Let me read to you again 1 John 4.20. If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister... That person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we, excuse me, how can we love God whom we cannot see? John was very practical in this. Took a very practical approach. You say you love God, you say you're close to God, but you don't love the brethren, you're deceiving yourself. Jesus said, look, if you bring your gift to the altar, in the temple and there remember that your brother has something against you leave the gift go make amends with your brother then come back because God is saying you can't love me and worship me when you have things in your heart against another brother or sister in Christ so John was the apostle of love more than anybody else but Jesus himself he taught it he lived it but now I'd like you to turn to Mark 3 Now, as you turn there, I want you to realize that this apostle of love, who wrote the epistle of love, 1 John, and the gospel, which has been called by some the love letter to the world, this man of love, listen, was not always this way. In Mark 3, we see Jesus appointing his apostles. And in verse 14, we read, Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Notice, guys, what was the first thing on the list as to why Jesus chose these men? Notice what it says. That they might be what? With him. That they might be with him. Don't ever forget that. Too many Christians focus on what comes after that. And they think being a Christian is all about getting into ministry. Nothing wrong with that. Let's keep our priorities straight. 
But they think, you know, being a Christian is all about preaching. I'm going to be a preacher, you know. Or I'm going to be one of them TV evangelists. I want power to heal. It's all about what they're going to do for God. It's all about the service. And John may be thinking of Mary, the sister of Martha. Maybe John was thinking, you know, you guys are thinking of service. It's all about sitting. It's all about sitting in Jesus' presence and soaking up his presence. Ministry, guys, first and foremost, is about spending time with Jesus. Because out of that time with Jesus flows ministry. Without that time with Jesus, ministry can be a very frustrating and fruitless endeavor. You're trying to serve the Lord without power, without his presence. You've got to spend time with Jesus first and foremost in the word, in prayer. Ministry always flows out of that time with Jesus. You remember in Acts chapter, well, 3 and 4, you don't have to turn there. In Acts 3, Peter and John were making their way into the temple. I think it was around uh, uh, the ninth hour, 3 in the afternoon. And there, Peter sees a lame man who has been there for, I don't know, what is it, 39 years, something like that. Long time, his friends would bring him every morning and put him there. Because, you know, if you didn't beg for alms when you were disabled, you, there was no social programs, government programs. You, you depended on the generosity of people to give you uh, alms, gifts of money. And so Peter, walking by this guy, the Spirit of God must have spoken to Peter, and Peter looks at him and says, look at me. The guy looks at Peter thinking, oh, this guy's going to give me some money. He puts his hand out. Peter says, silver and gold have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Stand up and walk. And takes this guy by the arm, pulls him up. The guy stands for the first time. I think he was born that way from his mother's womb, it says. He stands. I wasn't there, of course. Uh, I would imagine he began to walk, then jog, and now he's running through the whole temple precincts. People are going berserk. They know who he is. This drew a huge crowd. And Peter preached the second spirit-filled message, and many got saved. Well, by this time, the temple police, the temple guard, were sent to arrest Peter and John and brought back to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and these men cross-examined John. What they really, uh, uh, the, Peter and John, what they really did was threaten them. Not to preach any more in the name of Christ. Well, of course, Peter uh, went on to say, well, you've got to decide whether we should obey you or God. As for us, we can't help but speak the things that we have seen and heard. So God told us to go into all the world and preach. That's what we're doing. But earlier, how it says in Acts 4, verses 13 and 14, now when they saw the boldness, these are the religious leaders of Israel, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uh, uneducated and untrained men, in other words, they hadn't gone to seminary, they marveled. And they realized, listen, that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But you notice how the ministry came after they had been with Jesus. You want a dynamic ministry for the Lord, whatever that might be? Make sure you put the Lord before any kind of service. We must sit before we stand to serve. Back to Mark chapter 3. So he's calling these guys to be apostles, and he calls Simon, who he gave the name Peter. Verse 17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, 
to whom he called them and gave them the name Boagones, that is, sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. Um, James and John were notorious hotheads. Uh, you know, they were just the kind of guys that, they were not patient people, all right? Uh, to put it mildly, they, they, they were given to fits of anger, uh, fly off the hand, not very patient, fly off the handle pretty easy, hotheads, Jesus, I'm going to choose you two guys, you're sons of thunder. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus chooses us as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are? John was going to find that out firsthand, okay? But James and John initially were very hotheads. Uh, we see this come through in Luke 9, if you turn there. I think it's kind of comical in some ways. But Luke 9, starting with verse 51. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? Wow. Because the, the people in this village didn't want Jesus or his disciples coming into their town. Why, I don't know. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Okay. John and James got ticked off about it. And said, Lord, you know, let us blast these guys. Let us burn them up. Remember Elijah called fire down, burned up the enemy. He said, like, let us do that, Lord. What did Jesus say to them? Verse 55. But he turned and rebuked them, okay? He said, look, you don't know what spirit, what manner of spirit you are of. Well, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. No, we're not going to burn them up. Let's just go to another town. Burn them up. Look, basically, Jesus said, I haven't come to blast, but to bless. I haven't come to burn, but to build. Listen, listen again to what Jesus said. You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. In 1 John 4, 8, it says that God is love. As Christians, we know, the, we know God the Spirit, second person, third person of the Trinity, lives inside of us. The Spirit is God. So if God is love, the Spirit is love. That is, listen, that is what spirit we are of. We are of the Spirit of God, not of the Spirit of the world. We are of the Spirit of life, not death. We are of the Spirit of love, not hate. Look, I know you've been following the news. I don't know how you couldn't, given what's going on in North Korea. And um, it's pretty tense. And um, what, what is going to happen? We don't know. We, we, we're praying. I know that there are some Christians who want to see our president press the button and eviscerate North Korea. Wipe it off the map. I heard one pastor on TV a few days ago who was actually a good man. But he said that God has given President Trump the moral responsibility to wipe out North Korea. I think that God has given to us the moral responsibility to try to save life rather than take it because of the spirit we are of. 
Now, I'm not saying this may not lead to us nuking North Korea, but I sure hope it doesn't. I hope and pray it doesn't. These folks live under this dictator who is not in his right mind. I see them on TV, and of course they're marching and they're all because they have to. They're, they're, it's a dictatorship. God forbid they shouldn't march in solidarity with solidarity with their leader. I'm wondering how many of them feel in their hearts about the whole thing. But I see them on TV. I see these beautiful faces of these North Korean people, and my heart just goes out. I've been praying, Lord, please don't let these people die for this maniac. Please, Lord, do something. Take him out. If you have to, send a plague, an angel, wipe him out. That his people won't have to suffer. So pray for that situation. But John, who was called the apostle of love, as my point is, he didn't start out that way. He was not a lover of men in the beginning. He was a son of thunder. But as he spent time beholding Jesus, Looking at Jesus, spending time with Jesus, seeing how Jesus loved people, how he handled situations, the mercy, the grace. As he gazed upon Jesus, a wonderful thing began to happen, a transformation began to take place. He became a man of love. It wasn't natural. It wasn't his natural inclination that did it or human character. It was a total work of the Holy Spirit from within, again, 2 Corinthians 3.18. I want you to remember that next time you're prone to think, I can't be a person who loves. It's just not in my nature. Or, I just can't forgive that person for what they did to me. I don't have the strength. Listen, the same Spirit of God who lived in John and changed him from a hothead son of thunder into someone who went around telling people my little children love each other, okay? Uh, the same spirit who worked, worked in John is in you and I. And if he can do it for John, he can certainly do it for us, if we're willing, if we're willing. You can hold on to the anger and bitterness. God's not going to rip it from you. But if you're willing to let go of it and you don't have the strength to do it, God will give you the grace. And it won't happen overnight. But little by little, you'll be transformed into the image of Jesus. And guys, as we close, this is why I, I want to study the Gospel of John. We studied Matthew's Gospel. John's is unique. We'll see that next time. But that's why I want to study the Gospel of John, so we can gaze at Jesus and learn of his love, the love he showed others, that we might then, by the Spirit's strength, become, be transformed into an image of Jesus. That's the goal. That is the goal. That the more we behold Jesus, the more we will be transformed into his likeness, that we too might become a disciple of love. Let me just say this. As great as it is to be a people who move in missions, as wonderful as it is to be a people who study the word of God, as powerful and great as it is to be a people who are flowing in the things of the Spirit, and as dynamic as it is to be doing the works of ministry, listen to me. The most important thing we can do above all else, the thing that God wants us to do above all else, is to demonstrate God's love to the people of this world and first and foremost, how we treat each other in the church or the body of Christ. If we can't love one another who are family, how are we going to love enemies 
as Jesus commanded us to do. I have you turn to one last scripture, 1 Corinthians 13. You all know it. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is defining agape love. This is God's love now. Not just not human love, this is God's love. So every time you see the word love, think of God's love, agape. In verse 8, Paul says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. God's love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. God's love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't rejoice when people sin and laugh at it and have a good time. But God's love rejoices in the truth. God's love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God's love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Verse 13, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Because love will go on forever. Prophecies will come to an end. Speaking in tongues will come to an end. Hope, we don't hope for what we have. Once Jesus comes and we have the, our, you know, our inheritance, there's no more need for hope. Love will endure forever. And I want you to notice one thing. In all the things that Paul said about love, all verbs. All verbs. God's love is not just talk. It's not just feelings. It's actions. We demonstrate God's love. We don't just talk about it. James says, look, some of you are saying to people who are in need in the church, hey, be filled and be warmed. Hope it works out for you, but you don't give them what they need to, to uh, food for the body. What good is that kind of love or that kind of faith? Look, we're done. Let me just say this. We'll close. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. Let me stop. By this all men will know you are my disciples. By what? By your doctrine? No. By your understanding of church government? No. Uh, by your knowledge of the word? Word. Important, but no. By your boldness in witnessing? He said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have fervent love for one another. This is what God is telling us. We must have God's love. We must allow God's love to flow through us. It's there. It was poured into us. Romans 5, verse 5, when we got saved. We can keep it bottled up. We can keep it chained up. We don't have to move in God's love. We can, we can you know, suppress it go on with our own human love, which is selfish, and so on. But we have a great opportunity to humble ourselves and let the Spirit of God flow through us with God's love to this world. Agape love is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Nobody can be neutral when they are shown agape love. Some people can't handle it because it's unconditional love, and they want to attack you to silence you. They can't deal with it. Other people can't resist it, and they fall on their knees and accept Christ because of your witness. But agape love will never, ever, it can't be neutral. It will always have some effect on people. And the only way to really manifest it, manifest it is to draw close to Jesus every day. So may God give us grace as we 
endeavor to start studying this incredible gospel. And uh, may God bless our time in his word as we do. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, well, first of all, our Savior, of course. Not only did he come down to die for our sins that we might go to heaven, he came down to be a witness that we might look upon him to find out how we are to behave and to treat others in this world around us. And Lord, we just pray you would bless these studies in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, lead us uh, throughout this incredible gospel, teaching us the things you want us to learn, showing us Jesus in every passage, and giving us grace, Lord, to gaze upon the face of Jesus until we are transformed from glory to glory into his image. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.